Greetings, everyone. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the warnings that you have given us, for the way that you have shown us just how certain and how fearful judgment is for those who have not found Christ, those who are not in Christ. We thank you for those warnings that preserve us and keep us in the way. We ask that you would help us to do our part in being vessels that you can use to bring others into that straight and narrow way. We thank you for the study this evening. We ask that you will give us minds and hearts that are receptive to what you would have us to learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening we're going to be looking at 2 John, 3 John, and I've also added Jude in there. Since Jude is a, a shorter book, I had to add it somewhere. I didn't want to have it be a separate study, so we will be looking at 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And that's why I've entitled it Christ, the Truth, the Way, our Keeper. So the truth refers to 2 John, the way refers to 3 John, and our keeper refers to Jude. Okay, I will minimize the view here and move it out of the way. There we go. The author of 2nd and 3rd John is identified as the elder, but as I explained to you last time when we looked at 1st John, this elder is the Apostle John. It's not a separate person, as some would have us believe. Um, so it, the, the fact that it calls him the elder is just an indication of, of someone who is of mature age. Church history suggests that this was indeed the Apostle John. The style, the word use, and the themes found in 2nd and 3rd John are very similar to the other works John wrote. And I explained that last week when we were looking at 1st John. The author of Jude is identified as Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Uh, in the Gospels, a man named Jude is named as a half-brother of Jesus. We find that in both Matthew and Mark. A son of Mary and Joseph was born after Jesus. Now, there is a man named Jude or Judas in the original text, though it's not Judas Iscariot, it's the other Judas that was one of the twelve, uh, is also mentioned as one of Jesus' twelve disciples. In our English translations, we distinguish between Judas and Jude because we want to stress it that, that this Jude is not Judas Iscariot. But in, in the Greek, it's actually the same, the same name, Judas, Judas, which is simply the Greek form of the, of the Hebrew name Judah or Yehuda. So there's nothing wrong with the name Judas, it, it just simply means praise. Now, Judas Iscariot turned out to be a very bad person, but there was nothing wrong with his name. So anyway, one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples was in addition to Judas Iscariot was Judas, named Judas. And some have wondered if, if it was that Jude who wrote the book of Jude. 
but it probably wasn't. It's debated whether the author of this letter is the apostle, the brother, brother of James and brother of Jesus, or neither. The author did not identify himself as an apostle, but that could simply be a mark of humility. On the other hand, the author did speak of the apostles in the third term, in the third person, I mean. He spoke of the apostles in the third person, indicating that he did not consider himself an apostle. So that seems to rule out that he was one of the 12. And in all likelihood, he was James, or it was Judas, Jude, the brother of James and half-brother of Jesus. John probably wrote 2nd and 3rd John shortly after 1st John, sometime between 80, 90, and 95. During this time, the apostle was finishing his work as a pastor in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, unaware that his exile to the island of Patmos was right around the corner. It's unknown when Jude wrote this book. He probably wrote it before AD 70 because it doesn't mention the destruction of the Jewish temple and it confronts recurrent false teachings that were prevalent in the early church. The best estimate is sometime around AD 68 or 69. Now the, the landmarks. Uh, I hope you have learn by now what the acronym FLIGHT stands for, facts, landmarks, itinerary, gospel, history, and uh, travel tips. So the landmarks, what the book is about, Second John warns the, God, the church about the danger of the Gnostic teachers who denied the humanity of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. In it, John encouraged believers to continue walking in love, but to also be discerning in their expression of love, cautioning about receiving heretics into their homes and churches. In 3 John, the apostle praised the hospitality of believers. Believers were shown to, to faithful, godly, qualified teachers. He desired those believers to have fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who worked in full-time ministry. John used the examples of three different people in the early church to highlight three different ways to live, one of them bad and two of them good. Jude wrote his letter as a call to arms to the church to be constantly vigilant, standing strong in the faith and opposing heresy. Godless teachers were emboldening Christians to defect from the truth, saying that they could do as they pleased without fear of God's punishment but Jude would have none of it. His letter was meant to motivate believers everywhere to take action by recognizing the dangers of false teaching, protecting themselves and other believers against that false teaching, and winning back those who had already been deceived. So now when we look at the itinerary of the three books, that basic outline of the books. Second John, verses 1 through 3 are about balancing truth and love. Verses 4 through 6 are about walking in truth and love. And verses 7 through 13 are about standing for truth and love. Third John, the first eight verses are about the confirmation of Gaius, 
loved in the truth. This is a, a good example that John sets before us. Contrasted with the verses 9 through 10, when we read about the condemnation of Diotrephes, who loved not the truth. And then another good example, the commendation of Demetrius, who was loved by the truth. John actually uses the unusual expression that, that Demetrius was loved by the truth, even loved by the truth. And then in verses 13 and 14, we have a conclusion. The book of Jude, the first two verses uh, give us a salutation. It's about the preservation from apostasy. The main body of the book, verses 3 through 23, are an exhortation warning about apostasy. And then finally, verses 24 and 25 are a benediction, which gives us the victory over apostasy. The gospel aspect of these three books, second and third John, the gospel centers on an act of divine transforming love. Jesus laid down his life that we might live. But that sacrifice was necessary because of one significant and often hard to digest truth. We are dead in our sins by nature, and only God can save us. In other words, when it comes to the gospel, love and truth are inseparable. It's easy to look at the cross and acknowledge Jesus' love for us. It's another thing to know the truth of God's word and live by it. True believers cling to the word of God and do what Jesus says. No extra biblical stuff, no philosophy that says you need Jesus plus something else. As John wrote, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. The gospel is precious enough to defend. And those who herald it must equip listeners to do the same. Martin Luther wrote, a preacher must be both soldier and shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. In the early church, false prophets came right to your door. But John instructed believers not to receive these prophets into their homes. Lest you think that is overly harsh, remember that churches in the early days met in homes. So John was really saying not to let false teachers into the church. Today with wise preparation, we might have conversations with people who come to our doors teaching a different gospel. But even so, we need to protect the church as well as our homes from those who would lead us astray. The best way to do that is to walk in God's truth, growing in the knowledge of his word. The gospel aspect of Jude, faith in Jesus Christ is a prize worth fighting for. It's not something we earn, but it is something we need to fiercely guard as the most important truth in the world. Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, died for the sins of the world so that we can be saved from death and hell when we believe in him. Defending the gospel was the whole reason Jude, Jude wrote this letter, wrote his letter in the first place, saying, 
he found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. When Jude wrote about the faith that had been once for all delivered to the saints, he was saying that everything God wanted to say had been said and recorded by the New Testament authors by AD 100. All the other so-called revelations of God that have come after that time, including the Quran and the Book of Mormon, do not qualify as valid doctrine from God. Anyone who claims otherwise has to argue against or outright ignore Jude 3. History. John wrote his biblical works after the dispersion of Jews and Christians under the persecution of Nero, who reigned from AD 54 to 68, and after this, the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. The Roman emperors Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian ruled during the latter years of John's life. So Vespasian was ruling he was the emperor at the time when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70. At that time, uh, Titus was the general over the Roman armies that attacked Jerusalem. But he later became the emperor, this Titus. It was common for early Christians to meet privately in homes for worship and prayer. See the Romans and First Corinthians and Colossians and Philemon. Starting with the reign of Emperor Nero, Christians were systematically persecuted by the Roman government. So home churches provided safety and comfort. It was not until Constantine ratified the Edict of Milan in AD 313 that a tolerance for Christianity was enforced. Throughout his little little letter, Jude referenced a number of events in the Old Testament. To the early church, the Old Testament was history, but not some collection of made-up stories. Jesus himself considered the Old Testament to be a source of authority, and confirmed the stories of Jonah, of Noah, and Adam and Eve as historical happenings. They weren't just quaint bedtime stories. They were actual events involving actual people. True love requires love for the truth. You can't throw out truth for love's sake. Even with the best of intentions, loving others without sharing the truth of the gospel with them is counterproductive and could even end up helping those who want to undermine the truth. In those cases, John's point seems to be, it's not love if it's not based on God's truth. And Jude's point was that truth is worth fighting for. So, travel tips. Have the courage to address false teaching in the church. Oftentimes Christians don't want to deal with the fallout of drawing a line in the sand, even if it's over an essential theological issue. So we bend the truth and call it an act of love. But John said love and truth should never be separated. Jesus was God's love incarnate. His actions and words tell us that sometimes confrontation is demanded by a higher love 
a love of God's truth. Love is rarely attacked, whereas truth often is. John wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Why didn't he say he rejoiced in his children walking in love? Because truth is the foundation of God's love, and it's the first Christian virtue the world attacks. The minute you say this is God's absolute truth for everyone, you'll be criticized. Love, on the other hand, is almost never condemned. The world simply lessens it by re redefining it. But sincerity, good intentions, or love alone isn't what makes a Christian. Be gracious, but stick to the truth. One of the marks of a Christian leader is hospitality. Show faithful people the love of Christ by welcoming and hosting them in their home. Hospitality is also a way Christians can support other Christians who are doing God's work and need a place to stay, such as missionaries, traveling preachers, and musicians. John praised Gaius for displaying this kind of hospitality. What a blessing to give a fellow believer a welcoming environment as you break bread with them and provide a comfortable place to rest, sharing in the work of the Lord. Jude's tone and topics were serious, yet he still graciously opened his letter by saying, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. These three things are the very qualities we ought to display as believers who are contending for the faith. Balancing truth with love when witnessing. While we want to contend earnestly for the faith, we don't want to do so contentiously. The nature of God's truth doesn't change no matter how you speak it, but nonetheless speak it in love. The truth of the gospel is less effective when spoken obnoxiously or with contempt. So love people enough to tell them the plain truth, but tell the truth, tell that truth with respect and kindness. The purposes of 2 John, three reasons can be discovered from the text for writing this book. First of all, John wanted to warn against the heresy of denying the humanity of Christ, as we have seen in, in recent studies, that was a, a big issue in the first century church, depending on the full humanity of Christ. In our day, it seems to be more the depending on the deity of Christ, but both must be dependent. He wished to exhort them to Christian love. He desired to encourage them to live a life of fidelity in the faith. So those, those are the purposes that are given in Second John. Purposes of Third John, the reason for writing this book, John desired to praise Gaius for his fidelity to the truth. He wished to commend the congregation for their hospitality and support for those in ministry. He wanted to condemn Diotrephes for his lack of humility. He desired to commend Demetrius for his testimony. So remember, I told you there's two good examples in the book and one bad example. The purposes of Jude, there are four basic reasons for writing the book of Jude. 
Jude wanted them, the, the congregations, to be steadfast in the faith. He hoped to explain the apostasy from the faith to them. And he does that by with several examples from the Old Testament. He wished to inform them of how to avoid the coming catastrophe. If we want to escape judgment, we have to be in Christ. He wanted to encourage them to mature in the faith. So those were the purposes of Jude. Now we'll take a look at some of the issues that we find in the books of 2nd John and 3rd John and Jude. John addresses his second letter to the elect lady. Some have argued that because this was, a, was strictly a personal letter addressed to a particular lady, that it does not belong in the canon of scripture. Was the elect lady a person or not? First of all, if the elect lady were a particular person, this would not exclude it from the canon of scripture. Several of the epistles of Paul were personal letters to particular individuals, for example, for example Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Second, it is possible that the elect lady was not a particular person. The proposals of commentators basically fall into two categories, the literal and the figurative. Those who understand this address to be literal hold that this was indeed a certain individual whom John knew. The following points are offered in this view. It seems more natural to take the, the words as an address to an actual lady and her children. Secondly, this view fits with the references to the children of the elect lady, her sister and her sister's children. They're all referred to in this book, the elect lady and her sister and her sister's children. The basic structure of the greeting in verse 1 fits with the basic structure of the greeting in John, of 3rd John 1. To the blank whom I love in truth. So in 2nd John is to the elect lady and 1st John is to Gaius. So it follows that same structure in both books, which was an address to a certain individual, Gaius. And lastly, if the term lady refers to the church, then to whom does the word children refer? Are the children not included in the church? Are they somehow different from the church? So those are the arguments of those who believe that it is a particular person. Those who hold the view that this is a figure of speech maintain that this is a reference to the church as a whole or the particular local church. The following points are made in support of this view. So this is the view now that that the elect lady is not a certain person, it's a reference to the, the church or to a local church. First of all, John states that the lady is loved not only by him, but by all those who have known the truth. So this would mean that everyone knew her. However, this kind of observation would fit better when referring to a local church than to an individual. Although John uses the singular pronoun you, 
when he addresses this elect lady. He does switch to the plural in verse 8, where he seems to be warning the lady, look to yourselves. But if this were a literal woman, why would he use the plural at all? The appeal to love one another makes more sense when directed to a community of believers than to a woman and her children. The personification of the church in feminine terms is common in the Bible. For example, Ephesians 5, 30-33, where Paul denotes the idea that the church is the bride of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 13, where Peter uses the feminine expression of the church. Although we may not be able to decide the issue definitively on the basis of our current information, it is clear that if this was a personal letter to a literal woman, this fact would not exclude it from the canon of scripture. And it is not at all clear that it is a reference to an individual lady. Shouldn't we love our enemies? This is a, another issue that comes up in 2 John. According to Jesus, we are supposed to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, and do good to those who hate us. However, according to John in 2 John 10, we are not to receive into our house or even greet anyone who comes to us and does not believe that Christ has come in the flesh. So which are we supposed to do? We are supposed to follow both instructions. The apparent discrepancy between these directives arises from the fact that they are talking about two totally different situations. In the passage in Matthew, Jesus is contrasting his own teaching to that of the Pharisees. The divine principle of love should be the guiding principle of one's life. Even though some people are the enemies of God, he still allows the rain to fall on their crops and causes the sun to shine on them. God treats the wicked with loving kindness. However, he never condones their wickedness. As Paul points out in Romans, the goodness of God is not a sign of his approval of their actions. Rather, the goodness of God is designed to lead them to repentance. The passage in 2 John is not talking about someone who simply comes to visit. Rather, John is talking about false teachers who are deceivers and who come to present their doctrines. First, John is instructing the local church and the individuals of the local church not to extend hospitality to these persons, because that would imply that the church accepted or approved of their teaching. The people of the local church were directed not even to give a Christian greeting to them, lest this be misconstrued as an attitude of tolerance of their false doctrines. This was by no means a command not to love one's enemy. In fact, following John's directives would be the supreme act of love for one's enemy by clearly demonstrating an intolerance for false doctrine, it would be possible to communicate to false teachers that they need to repent. On the contrary, if the church or an individual were to extend hospitality to a false teacher, he would be encouraged in his position and take this action as an acceptance of his doctrine or as a covering of his unrighteousness. Second, it must be remembered that in the early church, the evangelistic and pastoral ministry of the church was conducted primarily by individuals who traveled from location to location. These itinerant pastors depended on the hospitality of the people of a local congregation 
John is directing the church not to extend this kind of hospitality to teachers of false doctrine. This is not contradictory to Jesus' teaching. We are to love our enemies, but not encourage them in their evil deeds. We are to do good to them that hate us, but not condone their wickedness. As Jesus said, we are to show ourselves to be children of our Father. In the very same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went on to warn his disciples to beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. John gave practical application to this warning and thereby encouraged the local church to maintain its purity and devotion to Christ. Now another topic, a topic that comes up in 3 John. John says here in 3 John 7 that the brethren took no support for their ministry for unbelievers. Yet when Solomon built a temple, he accepted gifts from Gentiles. Is it always wrong to take money from unbelievers for God's work? As a rule, God's work should be supported by God's people. For those who benefit spiritually should share materially with their teachers. On the other hand, it may offend an unbeliever if his gift is turned down and can place an obstacle in the way of a person's becoming a believer. When a visitor attends our fellowship, Gospel of Grace, and he chooses to place a, an offering in the, in the plate, in the basket. We don't check out that person to see, well, is he really a Christian? No, if he wants to contribute, that is, that is fine. That is perfectly acceptable. Moses did not reject gifts from Egypt, nor did Solomon reject the gifts and help of the Gentile King Hiram or from the Queen of Sheba. So while money should not be sought from unbelievers, Neither should it be rejected, unless, of course, there are strings attached. Under no conditions should spiritual or other favors be bought by anyone. And, of course, that uh, brings to mind Simon Magus in the book of Acts, who attempted to, to buy an office in the church. Uh, so much so that uh, there's actually, that name has actually been given to that the practice of trying to buy church offices, simony. Furthermore, it should be noted that this passage in John 3, and 3 John, excuse me, is descriptive, not prescriptive. It does not say never take money from unbelievers. It simply notes that these particular believers on this journey did not accept help from unbelievers. No doubt they wanted to refrain from any appearance of selling the truth, rather as it should have been, they depended on other believers to send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. We should not expect unbelievers to support the cause of faith. Now, a few additional facts about the book of Jude and the author of the book of Jude. We can conclude that Jude was a traveling evangelist and that his wife traveled with him. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, it says, uh, Paul asked this question. He said, 
do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Notice that it says the brothers of the Lord, it includes them and those who took a wife along with them. And Jude was one of the brothers of the Lord. So it's reasonable to conclude that his wife accompanied him. Uh, Jude's sons and grandsons. The church historian Eusebius tells us that Jude had sons and grandsons. Because these sons and grandsons were members of the house of David, the emperor Domitian viewed them as potential leaders of the revolt against Rome, and he had them brought before his judgment seat. They showed their calloused hands to the emperor, proving themselves to be farmers who were not seeking an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. They were released and lived into the second century. Jude's triads. Jude's makes Jude makes extensive use of triads, lists of three things. There are a total of 14 triads in the book. Imagine that there are 14 of these triads in a, in a short book of 25 verses. I won't give you all 14 of the triads, but I'll give you some examples of what we mean by triads. In the first verse of Jude, he says, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Called, sanctified, preserved. Two things, or three things. A triad. Here's another triad from the second verse. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love. Once again, three things. And we'll find that, that Jude often uses that pattern in his book. Jude quotes Peter. Anyone reading 2 Peter and Jude together, and comparing the two, will notice a great deal of similarity. It is quite obvious that one is quoting from the other. Which is it? Is Jude quoting from Peter or is Peter quoting from Jude? We think that 2 Peter was written around AD 66 and Jude was written just a little bit later in AD 68 or 69. So Jude is quoting from Peter. Peter was writing first and then Jude. So when uh, there's some quotation going on is Jude quoting from Peter. Another indication that this is the case, Peter wrote in the future tense, whereas Jude wrote in the past tense. Peter was predicting events that would happen in the future, whereas Jude writes about the same events after they have already occurred. So that's another indication that Jude is quoting from Peter. There are 13 quotations from 2 Peter contained in the book of Jude. So I put together a little chart, a little table here, giving you those. So Jude, verse 3, comes from 2 Peter 1, 5. 4 comes from 2 Peter 2, 1. 6 from 2 Peter 2, 4. 7 from 2 Peter 2 6, 8 from 2 Peter 2 10, 9 from 2 Peter 2 11, 10 from 2 Peter 2 12, 11 from 2 Peter 2 15, uh, first part of verse 12 from 2 Peter 2 13, verses 12 and 13 come from 
2 Peter 2, 17. 16 comes from 2 Peter 2, 18. 17 comes from 2 Peter 3, 2. And 18 comes from 2 Peter 3, 3. So there's quite a bit of quoting going on in the book of Jude. Now, going back here, you notice that 2 Peter verse 6, or excuse me, Jude verse 6, and 2 Peter 2, 4, that is probably the, the most famous link between the two books. And that has to do with the angels who kept not their first estate. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And those angels who did not keep their first state, their proper domain, are the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So it's um, quite an extensive study to examine the, the fallen angels and Genesis 6 and and uh, Bob and Eric have talked extensively about the divine council and all of the all of the issues that are involved there. But the bottom line is that these angels who kept not their first estate, their proper domain, they are the sons of God, referred to in Genesis 6. So let's look at four points that Jude gives us about those fallen angels. They were angels that kept not their own principality. So they were fallen angels, but we're not talking about all fallen angels, just those fallen angels who had committed this especially egregious act in Genesis chapter six that necessitated God to send a worldwide flood to destroy the offspring of this illicit union between the fallen angels and human women, known as the, the Nephilim. Their own principality, the angel's own principality, was the angelic sphere. And Jude is making the point that they did not remain in their own angelic sphere, but chose to leave it. The Greek word for kept not means that they did not attend to their own business. They did not keep proper vigilance and guard. They did not stay within the angelic sphere, but chose to enter the human sphere. These angels left their proper habitation. They left the abode of fallen angels. They left that heavenly abode of the atmospheric heavens, their proper habitation, and they entered the earthly abode. I, I referenced the atmospheric heavens from the statement that Paul made about the, the, the prince of the power of the air. That's what that is a reference to. When angels, whether good or bad angels, appear, they appear as young men. These fallen angels appear as young men and intermarried with human women. In this way, they left their proper habitation. The angels intermarried with human women in an attempt to thwart and corrupt the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 6, 
was Satan's response to Genesis 3.15. These angels are now kept in everlasting bonds under darkness as a result of that sin. When God used the Noahic flood to destroy the product of the intermarriage between fallen angels and human women, the Nephilim, these fallen angels were placed in confinement. As Second Peter stated, they were confined to a place called Tartarus. This is different than Hades or Gehenna, the other two Greek words that are commonly translated as hell. That place in Second Peter is the only place where this word Tartarus appears. So this is a special place of confinement specifically for those fallen angels. And the angels who kept not their first estate. These fallen angels are confined unto the judgment of the great day. They are confined until the time of final judgment. These fallen angels were never, will never be free again. They've been confined ever since that incident in Genesis 6. And they will be confined until the day of judgment. After the millennium, they will be summoned from Tartarus to appear before the judgment seat, after which they will be cast into the lake of fire. So this lesson from Genesis 6 is an example from history used to remind the believers that God knows how to punish sinners. God's judgment is certain and God's judgment is fearful. Another issue that comes up with regard to the book of Jude is the incident of Michael and Satan. In verse 9 of Jude, isn't the dispute between Michael and the archangel, Michael the archangel and the devil, based on an apocryphal story? Jude records an account in which Michael the archangel and the devil have a dispute over the body of Moses, saying, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So Jude is referring to this confrontation between Michael the archangel and Satan the devil. This account is not found in the Old Testament, but it is, it is considered to be found in a pseudepigraphal book called, titled The Assumption of Moses. Um, just in passing, distinguishing between the Apocrypha and the pseudepigraphal books, the books that are included in Roman Catholic Bibles and also Eastern Orthodox Bibles but not in Protestant Bibles, are referred to as the Apocrypha. The pseudepigraphal books are not found in anybody's Bible, either in the Catholic Bibles or the Eastern Orthodox Bibles or in the Protestant Bibles. So they're books that relate to biblical narratives and biblical incidents and biblical subjects, biblical topics, but they are not part of the canon of scripture. And it appears that Jude is referring to one of these pseudepigraphal books, The Assumption of Moses. 
in the verse that we're looking at. Just because the account is not found in any Old Testament passages of scripture, doesn't mean that the event did not occur. The Bible often cites truths from books that are not inspired, but which contain nevertheless some true statements. A biblical author is not limited to citing only scripture. All truth is God's truth, wherever it is found. And another uh, extra biblical, non-canonical source that um, Jude apparently cites in Jude 14. Does Jude cite the uninspired book of Enoch as divinely authoritative? Jude quotes the book of Enoch saying, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, meaning mean that um, Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. That appears to be a quotation from the book of Enoch. However, Enoch is not found in the canon of scripture, but is considered pseudepigraphical by the Christian church. Uh, the one exception to that would be that uh, churches of Ethiopia do consider Enoch to be part of the canon of scripture, but generally that is not the case, either among Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or Protestant. The book of Enoch is not considered part of the canon of scripture. First, it is not certain that Jude is actually citing the book of Enoch. He may simply be mentioning an event that is also found in this non-canonical book. It is noteworthy that Jude does not affirm that Enoch wrote this statement. He simply records what Enoch said. So Jude may not have been using the book of Enoch. He may have been using a valid oral tradition and not the book of Enoch. Furthermore, even if Jude took this statement from the book of Enoch, it is still true. As previously stated, many true statements can be found outside of scripture. Just because Jude quoted from a non-canonical source does not mean that what he says is necessarily wrong. Not everything in the book of Enoch is correct, but this does not warrant the conclusion that everything in it is wrong. The Apostle Paul cited truths from pagan poets and philosophers. So we see that in, in Mars Hill in Acts 17, and also in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and Titus. This is without implying that these books are inspired. Indeed, even Balaam's donkey uttered a truth. The inspiration of the book of Jude guarantees that all it cites is true. So not everything in the Assumption of Moses is true. Not everything in the book of Enoch is true. But the items that Jude quoted are true. And we can be sure of that because of the inspiration of the book of Jude. The existence of Enoch and his communication with God is a fact established elsewhere, both in the Old Testament, we can read about that in Genesis 5, and the New Testament, Hebrews 11, in the faith chapter, uh, the example of Enoch is mentioned. And so that concludes our overview of 2nd John, 3rd John, and the book of Jude. Oh.
conclude now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the scriptures that guarantee that we will be saved, we will be preserved, and we truly put our trust and faith in you and the work that the finished work that your son did on the cross for us on our behalf that we can be secure that we can know that we are saved and that our salvation will be completed and that um, as job said um, i know that my redeemer lives and that i will stand in my body before him we thank you for these things. We just ask that you would be with us and help us to continue to grow and to continue to understand these things more fully. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.